You're listening to Scalay Sisters, episode number 67. Welcome to Scalay Sisters, the podcast for the classical homeschooling mama who seeks to learn and grow while she's helping her children learn and grow. Scalay Sisters is a casual conversation about topics that matter to those of us in the trenches of classical homeschooling who yearn for something more than just checking boxes and getting it all done. I'm your host, Brandi Bensel. You can find me at Afterthoughts. That's where you'll find my thoughts on educational philosophy and homeschooling, as well as my Charlotte Mason study guides and workshops. My co-host today is Abby Wall. Abby is basically the queen of the School A Sisters sistership. Abby is a country-living farmer, rancher, a loving wife, and mom of five who homeschools and reads whenever she can. Our special guest today is one of my favorite people, Karen Glass. Karen Glass has been homeschooling her children for 25 years, and she's not quite finished yet. She is one of the founders of the Ambleside Online Curriculum Project and has delved deeply into Charlotte Mason's philosophy of education. She has lived in Poland, where her husband ministers, for over 20 years. In the last few years, she has begun writing books to share some of the things she has learned along the way. Speaking of the sistership, we cut about five minutes from this episode and it's available there in the cutting room floor bonus section. To join us, just go to scolasisters.com slash sistership and sign up for the basic membership. You'll help support the podcast and get fun and interesting extra audio all at once. Today, Abby and I chat with Karen about motivation. Are there right and wrong ways to motivate our students? What does motivation have to do with good character? And can sticker charts really be the death of virtue? So many questions and a great conversation. And so without further ado, let's get to it. Well, let's start off with our school A every day. Abby, why don't I have you go first and lead the way today? Okay. Well, I'm Abby. And this past week I finished, I have an audio collection and it's The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And then at the end, they tacked on The Abolition of Man. So I finished The Great Divorce and I had never read that. So that was really intriguing and interesting. Mm -hmm. And I'm not quite sure about it. Do you ever read C.S. Lewis and feel simultaneously smarter and dumber? Um, That's kind of how I'm feeling. And the abolition of man I had started years ago, probably when my kids were really little. And I think I decided after a couple, you know, 20 pages or so, I was like, you know what? I probably don't have the brain capacity to read this. I'm not getting half of this. Hmm. Um, But uh, Pam keeps saying that it's like her favorite book. I was like, okay, well, I'll I'll try again. And audio should be easier because then I can just, you know, listen and do things. So I'm about a third of the way through that because it's pretty short and Mm -hmm. I am getting more of it. I remember some of the things and, but it's, it's coming back to me. I Uh, do feel like that's one you have to read a number of times before you really start connecting all the dots. It's not a one-time read. Yes. Yes. I really like the abolition of man. I do too. And then a friend of mine told me you have to read Abolition of Man with um, the science fiction trilogy, which I read as a kid. So I'm, I might 
reread that. Uh, I think it's just the last one. It's if you just wanna, the last one. I think it's just that hideous strength. That, that hideous strength. Okay, yeah. Together. And, and I would have to look it up, but that's what everyone told me. So maybe I'll read Abolition of Man and then I'll switch to that hideous strength and, and do that because I remember reading those and they were amazing. Um, mm-hmm. And I read those. So I lived as an exchange student in South America when I was in high school. Did you really? Yes. And there were not a lot of English books around. (laughs) So (laughs) whenever I found them, I was like, can I borrow these, please? And for whatever reason, somebody had that trilogy. (laughs) Oh, wow. I devoured it because I don't know about you, Karen, but when you're in a foreign country, you just want to hear your your own native tongue. And you... Oh, I mean, this would t- this would t- it would really take up. Too, I'm afraid too much time. But when I when we moved here in 1997, digital books were not a thing. Mm. Yeah, and there were five people. We brought ten trunks, and that included all of our you know clothing and household belongings. There was no room for books for me. Oh. I brought homeschool material for my kids, but there was no room for books for me. Oh. And at the time, it was virtually impossible to find English books here. Yeah. It was very, very difficult. The only thing which was available like in some language schools or, la- or, or books that sold foreign language material, they had those really cheap like Wordsworth classics. So oh. I was able to get, you know, I could find like Jane Austen or Dickens or something like that. And then I'd been here a year and somebody was like, oh, the British consulate has the library. And they told me how to go. So I'd been here a year or more maybe. And I, it it was really hard to find the place. My language skills weren't great. So even when I got there, it was difficult to locate it. It was inside a big university building. Mm. But when I did and I walked in, I literally felt like I could pull any book off the shelf and just devour it. It didn't even matter. <laughs> yeah. I just was that desperate. No, you're like reading <laughs> You're like fertile ground to be just like ready for spring. No. I, read, I mean, there would have been no discernment whatsoever. <laughs> well, and, and that's kind of where I was at. But luckily, the people that I had found who had books had like, I, I read a ton of Ernest Hemingway. Oh, wow. Because that's what was available. <laughs> And actually, he's a great writer, so it wasn't <laughs> terrible. And then I had Prerlandra and the Out of the Silent Planet, and I read those. And there was a few other ones, and there were some definitely not great ones because there was a bunch of exchange students. They're like, oh, here, I have some, and they were just pretty much trash. But I don't know, that hunger for your own native tongue um, when you're in a foreign country is, is just something that I've not quite experienced yeah, but If you're a reader and you have been starved for reading material, yes, it's like bad. Yeah. So, Abby, do you speak Spanish? Um, actually, it's Portuguese. Portuguese. I was okay. In Brazil. Yeah, Brazil. All right. Yep. So the less helpful, but yeah, I was just going to make a comment. <laughs> so actually, I met some people trying to translate Charlotte Mason into Portuguese. So yeah, actually, there's quite a great Brazilian homeschool movement. Yeah, I noticed. I followed a bunch of people like, online. I was like, oh yes, good for you. So yeah, I mean, I don't Exciting. speak it very well anymore. I can get through, but um, you know, it's been, let's see, that was in 99 and 2000. It's been 20 years. So, because I'm, because I'm feeling. Yeah. That's, I mean, you have so many opportunities to practice, so I don't know what happened. <laughs> there's, there's, there's quite a few Brazilians. You would not believe, I mean, really? I find them all over the place. They're everywhere. They've, 
they really like to travel. So I found nice. them when I went to France. I found a bunch of Brazilians in our our hotel that we stayed at. Which oh, fun! Held like twenty five people. So I find I find Brazilians everywhere. Nice. Okay, I'll go next if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Well, because my my book was written by Karen Glass. <laughs> It's really, it is. It's actually the one we're talking about today. Okay. So this is the funny thing is I was trying to find something else because I was like, you can't use the book that you're discussing, but this is all I've read this week. (laughs) So so I'm just using it. So I'm using in vital harmony, but I decided I was going to read a quote from somewhere else in the book that we're not talking about in our regular discussion. And actually there were so many good things, Karen, it was hard to choose, but, um, I really do. I really do love the book. I really do. And I think it's a great starting place for people who are coming to Charlotte Mason and kind of, I don't know, I'm always looking for like the crash course version because, you know, there's the people that need to know what to do on Monday. They don't have five years to read Charlotte Mason before they start. Absolutely. It's a great option. So... It's only t- pe- taking people five years to read through Holler Revival. Uh, <laughs> good. There are plenty yeah. of people who've done Charlotte Mason, you know, for, for 10 years or more, but they've never read all, all six volumes. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Not everybody does that. Yeah. Not everybody's as crazy as some of us. <laughs> well, the quote that I was going to read from your book, Karen, was I, it just kind of struck a chord because I'm seeing Rousseau raising his head again <laughs> in homeschooling. It happens every three or four years where there's another big unschooling, which I get the appeal of unschooling. And I think a lot of unschoolers that come and take Charlotte Mason boot camp or something from me, a lot of the times they're saying, you know, unschooling gave me such a firm grasp and respect of personhood. And I totally, I totally see that. But of course, there's a curriculum design side of Charlotte Mason that goes beyond the unschooling view of personhood and what it means. I think it's, I think the tension between the two is actually a different view of personhood. So you on page 45, I mean, this is just like a short little thing, but you're talking about the tension between nature and nurture. And we have these debates that go on for, you know, what over a century now, right? Where we're saying, at least, yeah, you're born this way you're not born this way, you know, society made you this way or whatever. And, and so not that you're saying nurture only, but you do say when the question of nature and nurture arises, we must remember that nature left to itself will only grow wild. And I appreciated that so much because it reminded me of when my kids were little and habit training seemed just too overwhelming. The thing that kept me going was where Charlotte Mason basically said something very similar where she says, you know, if you don't train good habits, you fall into habits anyway. And lots of times those are not the good habits we actually want because it's the path of least resistance. And often those are bad habits. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it was, anyway, I just, I loved that quote because it's, it's true. Like we love children's nature, but we also see the need for the discipline side of it, that we're not just born perfect and corrupted by society, that we actually fall into what is easiest, which isn't always what is best. So I loved it. <laughs> well, that's good. So is it, is it my turn? It is your turn. <laughs> okay. So I'm reading a, a couple of books right now. I probably have more than that. Yeah, I could be said to be reading, but the ones that I'm actually <laughs> like have looked at pages and read pages of this week, there's a fiction, one fiction, one nonfiction. And so I'll just say the fiction first because it's not that remarkable, but I'm rereading um, Mansfield Park by Jane oh. Austen. I've read, I've read all of 
Jane Austen novels more times than I can count. Whichever one I happen to be reading is my favorite. So. Nice. <laughs> I never say that about Mansfield Park. <laughs> uh, no, no. He's, no. Mansfield Park is the one that I will say I, I wish I had a different ending, but yes. still, I'm, I'm yeah. No, actually, Emma is my least favorite. So. <laughs> and and then what a, the book that I'm reading and just really, really enjoying more than I usually even enjoy books like this uh, is a book called Thoughts on Education by a man named Mandel Creighton. And I'm reading it because Charlotte Mason recommended it in the appendix in volume five. If you're familiar with that appendix, it's just like a long list of books on education that she thinks are worth a parent's time to take the time to read and to learn. I'm not 100% certain that appendix wasn't included in the original home education. It might have been. But in any case, it's in volume five now. So which means nobody ever sees it. And so anyway, I bought the book because it's listed there and it is absolutely amazing. Charlotte really? Mason said, oh yeah, she, it's like, a, it's like, it's really not a consecutive volume of education. It's a collection of either essays or speeches that he gave at different times as he spoke oh. about education to different bodies of people who were concerned with education in one way or another. A lot of them connected with the church because he was, he was in the church in some way. So sometimes it's about Sunday school or Christian Readers Association or something like that. But it's, his thoughts are about education as a topic, not just religious or Christian education. And Charlotte Mason said, he just has this way of expressing himself. He's really terse and epigrammatic. That's her word. Mm. And leaves nothing more to be said. And I'm just, I've been enjoying it so much. So I might need to having, hunt down a copy of that. Yeah. That's, that's what I did last year when I did a blog series with Ann White on volume five, when I was reading through the appendix and, and thinking about it, that's when I really, really was paying attention to what she said and grabbed a copy of this book. Mm. Taking me a while to get around to really digging in. So that's what I'm reading. Nice. Sounds great. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and transition now to our topical discussion. And today we're talking really about motivation here. Our discussion is going to be very Charlotte Mason today because we have Karen here and she's, can I say Charlotte Mason expert? <laughs> I feel like that's a I dangerous thing can to you? say. <laughs> I can say it. <laughs> I, I generally shy away from calling anyone an expert, but Karen, really, <laughs> there's not another word for you. Okay. So, <laughs> so we could say enthusiast. Enthusiast. Okay. That's, I love that word. Actually, that's a great word. Okay. We have a lot of moms that will bring up things like, all this sounds great, but you know, I have a generally unmotivated child or I have, you know, a child that's generally motivated, but unmotivated in certain subject areas. Like there might be one or two places where it's a constant battle or whatever. And not that this discussion is going to solve all of that. And we always, and we always tell people if they're like 12, then just, you know, that's just life. Get over it. <laughs> they won't be 12 forever. Um, but we wanted to talk about, especially what you say in your book about principle four. So Charlotte Mason has her 20 principles, which you have reorganized in a different way. And I love the way you're presenting them. But in principle four, she talks a lot about ways that we're not allowed to motivate. Like she puts all these, takes all of these different things that we use a lot in our culture. So I'll give one example, rewards you know, the sticker chart or earning badges or any of that kind of stuff. And she's like, we don't motivate that way. 
And she even goes so far as to say it's a violation of their personhood. So I wanted us to start off by talking about why. Why is she saying all of, what are these things and why is she saying that they're off limits to us? What's, what's the big deal? If I can get my child to do the behavior I want, what's the big deal about paying him or telling him he's a good boy or I mean, whatever it is. So that's where we want to start our discussion, Karen. What, what is off limits and why? <laughs> right. Well, you really have to start with, I mean, this is principle four. And it is a subpoint to Charlotte Mason's first and probably most important principle that children are born persons. And I know when you, when you come to homeschooling, the very first questions you want to ask are, how? How do I do this? How do I teach math? How do I teach reading? Or, you know, even more explicitly, what curriculum do I want to buy? You know, what curriculum should I use for math? What program should I use to teach reading? Or, mm-hmm. And even when they're still five or six years old, you're looking at, curriculum for you know history and science and it's really really easy it seems easy to skip over bigger questions like mm-hmm. um, what kind of person am I educating and what is education actually what is it but really if you if you can answer these questions that are Charlotte Mason's principles well her, their principles answer the questions it makes all those other decisions so much easier mm-hmm. so you have to understand what a person is. And I don't actually think that Charlotte Mason's principle, as she has written it, children are born persons, is the full answer. That's just the the subheading. You really have to look beyond that and ask what a person is, what a person is supposed to be. And the answer is huge. It's really big. But I mean, in a short version, you're going to say, okay, this is a person created in the image of God. And their job is you know, my job as a parent is to grow this person to be the best person that they can be. Mm. An important aspect of that is helping them develop their character and in particular and explicitly developing their own will. They have to learn to make the right choices. Okay, that, that's really the bottom line. They have to learn to make right choices. Now, that begs a few other questions like how do they know what the right choices are? Mm. <laughs> but the point is, Because that is really such an important part of being a person is exercising your will and making right choices. Anything that you do that undermines that, where the child is literally choosing to do something because it's right, is undermining their personhood. You are not allowing them. If you're not actually weakening their will, you're at least hindering the development of their will and helping them to choose to do what's right. And it's always, it's terribly difficult to make the choice to do something right when you don't actually want to, you don't feel like it. But part of education is also making them want to do it, like helping them to want to make that effort. And then it becomes, that's where ha- part of where habit training comes in too. Then it becomes less of an effort. You, you mm-hmm. get into the groove, you know, you get up every single solitary day at 6.30 or 7. After a while, that's not as hard. And so when it comes to motivation, you know, making yourself do something, if you're only doing it for a reward, eventually there isn't going to be a reward or you're going to decide that whatever it is, isn't worth the reward, that the reward's not, reward's not good enough or big enough to make you do that thing. And so you're hindering the development of their will. And that's why wrong motivation undermines personhood. Did I answer the question? Yes. Yeah, I think you did. In fact, I had this connection that I hadn't made before, which was, because, you know, this, this approach, this whole rewards-based approach, 
Coupled, I think, with a fear-based approach, because I remember very distinctly in kindergarten being terrified that my name was going to get written on the board, <laughs> or maybe even worse, I would get a check mark next to my name on the board. Um, <laughs> what were you it, doing in kindergarten, Brandy? Um, <laughs> I, I actually, know. It's funny. I didn't get in trouble a lot, but I was very fear-driven. I mean, I have like this rem- remembrance of just having like this feeling in the pit of my stomach because I did so badly, did not want my name to be up on the board next to the kid who sat next to me, who, whose name was on the board every single day. Turns out that actually <laughs> didn't hurt him, <laughs> but, but I was just terrified. I don't know. Um, but I, I was thinking about this though, that I've heard so many moms say like, how can I expect this from my kids? I can't hardly expect this from myself. And it just, as I was listening to you, I thought maybe we were all just hand, I mean, I don't want to make an excuse for us, but at the same time, maybe we were all handicapped by how we were raised, not by our parents, but by the public schools. Everything was a reward or a fear. I don't think they really expected us to be self-motivated ever until high school when they were mad at us that we weren't. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Exactly. So I'm just wondering if maybe all of the moms struggle not, and I'm not even talking about struggling in how to motivate our own kids, but we all struggle with self-motivation because of how we were raised. I think that's, I think that's absolutely true. And it's actually one of the reasons I think that not only do we want to just fall so easily back into the, you know, the easy way of, of just using the reward threat paradigm it, it, because we don't know any different, but because we ourselves actually don't have the kind of self-motivation that we would like our children to have. We actually lack it. So like we can't imagine that that's possible. Right. We can't envision it because we, we aren't. Very few of us actually are that self-disciplined. When I was reading your book, I noticed this and I was thinking that why do people need to read this book? I think this is one of the big points, like the kind of 10,000 foot view, right? Is because oftentimes we have so many hangups from being years in the system, right? Mm -hmm. K through 12. And for me, plus I went to a state college. And I think in college, there's less fear-based. I mean, it is more meritocracy, but there still is. Well, grades themselves are, are, you know, they they fall under the same category. If you read Charlotte Mason, anytime she refers to marks, that's what she's talking about, what we would think of as grades. Yes. And I personally went, I personally went through school believing that everything that we were doing was for the purpose of getting A's on tests. So we would get A's in class. Like, mm-hmm. like that was the whole reason for the, everything that we were doing. I, yes. I don't really, all the way through college, that's what I thought. Oh, totally. I remember the day that I realized my kids were actually trying to learn the language they were studying. And it was like this light bulb went on and I was thinking, you know, I spent four years in Spanish class and all I was ever trying to do was pass the test and get the grade. It never even connected in my brain that I was trying to learn Spanish, which is, it sounds so dumb to say that. And I feel really stupid for having thought that, but I was just driven by my good grade. And it's possible I just didn't care enough about a language because <laughs> well, I feel th- like if I studied Spanish now, that's what I would be doing. Right. It's, it's very possible. But I mean, we, it's so built into the system and we take it for granted. And I think that's what your book helps people discover is the why behind it. Because so often homeschooling is, they're very superficial. Either it's out of fear, well, we don't want our kids in the public school system, or Mm. I can do it better than the public school system. 
but I don't know what actually better is, right? And I think that your book really explains a different, a paradigm shift of a why that will be lasting because there will be horrible, no good, very bad days. And if your reason for homeschooling is because, well, there's some bad things in the public school, you know, that public school down the street just doesn't look quite so bad. Right. Like put some lipstick on it and they can go back. (laughs) They can go back. So I think that, you know, I was writing some notes and I just thought, you know, what Karen keeps telling us and, and Charlotte Mason as well is everyone wants practical, but the key to good practices is good philosophy. Mm -hmm. And everybody always is like, well, just give me some hot tips. Give me some, some curriculum advice. Give me this, give me that. Right. I just want the quick fix right in our Amazon two-day delivery <laughs> system. We want it well, that now. Is, and that is actually why I really, really dug into the principles and yes. hooked into the two main principles yeah. so that you could, if you could get a hold of just those two yes. and all the rest of them, at least understand, even if you don't, you don't have to understand everything to the nth nope. degree, but if you understand peripherally how they fit around those two big principles that really, really matter, yes. everything else will be okay. Yes. And this idea, you have a quote in here. Let's see. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's from Mason and it's on page 111 in this book, but it's the art of standing aside to let a child develop the relations proper to him is the fine art of education. And I was thinking that, you know what? In a world of Amazon, we are trying to be craftsmen and we are not trying to be an assembly line of input this and this will be the, the product. And it's so hard to get away from that shift because of our own educational backgrounds and the society that we live in. And so I think that you have put this together and you spend so much time on the philosophy and you do have a lot of practical application of the philosophy in the later part of the book. So I think if you're starting out as a new to homeschooling, this would be a great basis for a why. And if you're Mm. later on, it is just so, I was just feeling like, yes, this is such an (laughs) affirmation and okay, that's where I need to work on this because we have done that. And it's very convicting and yet very encouraging. So I have just really appreciated this book. I had to read it really fast (laughs) because I didn't have it recently. So (laughs) I was like, I really wish I could have read this a little bit slower. So I probably will have to go back, but it will help so many people solidify their whys and really help with the understanding of the philosophy so that they can apply the practical, have that practical application. Right. Well, Charlotte Mason said there's nothing so practical as a, yes. a great idea. And that's yes. really what philosophy mm-hmm. is. It's, these, it's, these, it's the guiding ideas that help you just kind of give shape to everything that you're doing. And then it doesn't feel random, you know, so if you have a day where things aren't just okay. Like, like you say, there's no good, horrible, very bad days. Yes. <laughs> um, or weeks, let's be honest. Yes. Yeah. Yep. It, it doesn't make, have to make the whole process of education come to a grinding halt. You can kind of just put it in perspective and remind yourself of what really matters, like what's really important. Yes. Yeah. You had a place where you, you said, if our primary objective in education is the formation of character and strengthening of virtue as the second principle of Charlotte Mason suggests, then that objective carries more weight than learning phonics or subtraction facts. That's the kind of perspective that I love here. That I mean, yes, we do want them to learn phonics and their math facts, but 
putting that into a subsidiary position where it's in service to greater things and some things are more important than that, I think is super, super helpful. It's so easy to get discouraged and think, you know, we're behind in this or we're behind in that. And, you know, you can't be behind if your goal is, you know, formation of character because you don't expect to be finished with that, you know, even when your kids walk out the door. Yeah. You know, so, I'll, I'll tell you though, my, one of my areas of interest has been applying Charlotte Mason to gifted education. And one of the things I notice about parents of gifted kids is that it's really easy to rest on your laurels of them knowing their phonics and their math facts. Like when you have a five-year-old that know, already knows all that stuff, then you feel free to ignore the character issues that are going on because look at the great success we've had there. So, so anyway, I feel like that quote, that these objectives have to be subsidiary to character and personhood and virtue and all those things. It's easy to feel behind, but it's also easy to pat yourself on the back if you're (laughs) ahead and ignore it, ignore the other issues. So I think it cuts both ways, I guess is what I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah, you're probably right. (laughs) I Now, I don't see this like in Christian circles, but I see so much, I follow some of the secular gifted education pages and there is so much of just don't tell them no. Everything about them is just so good and they just need to be affirmed and they just and I'm like, wow, we're gonna create a culture of monsters. How how many of the world's wickedest men were brilliant, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, Most of them? yeah. So it's like all these really bad guys were not stupid. <laughs> and so I, the character issue has to come into play no matter whether your child struggles or whether they're average or whether they're brilliant. My husband, years ago, we were talking with friends and we were discussing classical education and sometimes it gets the bad reputation of, oh, it's elitist and snobby and all these things. And we do have one child that is probably on the gifted scale, but we're both firstborn, so we try to tamp that down pretty tight. Um, (laughs) So he's also our firstborn, so we just really try not to let that go to his head. But you know, my husband, he's like, well, to take from pop culture, you know, the observation with great power comes great responsibility. And as silly as that is, it is true. And so giving our kids the, you know, a great idea that, okay, so you can read faster and more and with greater ease, what are you going to do with it? Right. And that is so important to be teaching our kids. Yeah. Do you know that when Charlotte Mason did her exams, she sent the exams out for the PNEU. Obviously, there were a lot of questions on there about the books that they had been reading and, and they were supposed to give sampling of their handwriting and so on and all of that. But there were also questions or space on those exams for the parents or the governess to fill in something, anything at all that they wanted the school to know about their child. I read these pamphlets that are about the exams and I learned so much from reading them because what parents wrote back in, it could be something like how this particular child, for example, was really helpful with maybe a sick relative and they had spent a lot of time, you know, reading to them and running errands for them. Like that was an important part of the exam, that they were doing something in their life that showed that they were developing character. Wow. We should add that to our AO exam pages. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, one of these days, I really, I really, really, really want to go back through those pamphlets and organize my thoughts and present it because I learned so much from reading about those exams and and the way that they were handled. You can't always replicate it in homeschool because 
Well, one of the things I learned, we're really, I'm sorry, this is getting off topic, but one of the things I learned is that they, we can't grade our exams properly because they read all the exams and then they went back through and graded them and they, they developed an idea of what was average, like what was average and every paper that hit the standard of average, which was based on reading all of them, was marked good. Oh, wow. And that was the standard, kind of like grading on a curve, right? Except that it wasn't an objective, so many questions, right or wrong. It was, they read the papers because, you know, they were narrations and that sort of thing. And then the average paper was considered to be a good paper. So there was a, you know, you had to have, you had to have a, a large enough sampling to get that. And you can just can't replicate that in the homeschool. So my kids le- recently have asked if they could have grades. <laughs> and I was like, no. <laughs> But they have just been intrigued with the idea of grades. And so I don't even know why, but like, well, we just want to know if, you know, A or B or C. I was like, those have no meaning to us and we don't do that. So, but it's been quite funny. (laughs) You you don't have to put that in, but I just think it's funny. Well, I am actually curious, Karen, what you think about that. Like, how do you handle that kind of a thing? Because I I mean, there's an extent to which maybe they're just asking for more feedback or I don't know. I, I don't give grades to my kids at yeah. all until yeah. high school. And then only because you have to for a transcript. I right. never tell them what their grades are. Yes. I, I, I'm with you, Karen. Um, remember, remember how much how I, I went to school and thought that the only thing that mattered was getting A's on tests yep. and A's in classes? I, I abhor that to such an extent that it's, it's to me, it's not just that grades are meaningless. They are detrimental yes. yeah. to, to real education. I was just, one, well, in that Mandel Creighton book, I was just reading in the half an hour before we started talking here, and he had something to say about examinations, and I've never seen an educator say this. He said, I think that all students, teachers, and examiners should alike recognize that examination is an evil, a necessary evil it may be, and that all should strive together to minimize its bad result. Hmm. So, you know, we don't have a choice in our educational system that our kids actually do have to operate in, especially if they're going to go to college. They have to learn. But I mean, I literally told my students who went off to college, you will figure out what a teacher wants. Like it's a game. (laughs) You know, they all test differently. You may have to take a few of their tests, but you will figure out what they want. And then that's it. There's nothing to it really. Yeah. I want to talk about on page 60 of your book. So this is near the end of chapter six. You're talking about the commandment Well, actually, it's a quote from Charlotte Mason where she talks about the commandment, children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. And then you start Mm -hmm. to comment on it after that. You say, if children are going to develop the right relations with the virtues we want to incorporate in their lives, they must be motivated for the right reason. They need to learn to love doing right and to love doing their duty simply because they are compelled by the ought of moral authority. The scriptural instruction to children offers no reason for obeying other than for this is right. It is all too easy for educators to fall back on artificial motivators to achieve desired behavior. But because this is a hindrance to the real objective of education, we must use caution. We want our children to choose to do the right things because they are right and because they care about doing what is right. No one can be motivated by that reason alone unless they are given the chance and no other motives, reward or punishment are substituted. So I thought this was so important because What we don't realize is that when we're, as you call it, substituting these motivations for the pure motivations of doing what is right, or like in the classroom, enjoying 
just the joy of knowing something new mm-hmm. um, that we're actually undermining. We're undermining the good motivation by substituting something else. My question is more of an application of this. I completely accept this in my house. We don't, we just don't do that kind of stuff. I don't even pay an allowance <laughs> because I feel like, because we either have chores or I have jobs that people can get paid for if I think it's like a big job that I want someone to do, but I don't dole out money for doing your duty in the house. Right. So, we don't either. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not saying allowances are bad or whatever. Charlotte Mason actually talks about giving pocket money, but I just feel like I don't want them to be helping around the house because they think someone owes them something. <laughs> My thing is, so let's say you're trying to do this in your home. I mean, a great example is years ago, we left Awana because we were horrified that as the kids got older and older, they were earning more candy and more Awana bucks and more. We, were, we kept coming back to, can't we just love learning scripture? Why do we have to have all of this stuff? It just seems so awful to us. So we left. But how do we deal with this in a culture that wants to gamify everything? You can't hardly find an app online to help you practice your math facts without someone trying to help you earn badges and have bells and whistles and all these things. And I mean, I've read enough of the psychology behind this to know that they're trying to program in dopamine hits so that you experience a feeling of reward. What do you recommend to parents that are like, how do I navigate this world that the kids live in? Right. I gave some thought to that. The only conclusion that I could come to is you just can't play the game. The only way to win is not to play. Yeah. Because every single thing, and and this particular principle, um, if you look at the the way the, the whole fourth principle is written out, you know, it's because of our respect for our children's personhood, we're not going to motivate them with this and this and this, with suggestion and with, you know, out of love or fear. We're not going to motivate them in those ways. It is more of a prohibition. It's more of a negative than it is a positive. Yeah. Because the natural reward is there. The natural reward for memorizing your math facts is that you can solve math problems more quickly and easily. Your life will be easier. Yeah. You'll enjoy math more if those facts are, you know, automatic for you, but it doesn't come quickly and it doesn't come easily. And if you substitute something else, you'll never get there. You mean, literally, you could, you, you may never get there. Math may never be anything to you, but an odious chore that you will do only because somebody's forcing you or, you, you know, the reward is good enough to, you know, keep you at it. Right. Uh, I think you're better off sitting down. Well, I'd say, I mean, we, we drilled math facts. I don't necessarily remember everything that I did with my oldest kids now. In, in my defense, they're in their later 20s. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I still have, I still have a 15-year-old at home. And so I can remember what I did with her when we were drilling math facts. Yeah. And we just used playing cards. We'd turn over two and she had to add them together. So it was random, not systematic. And it was four or five minutes at the beginning of our math time. And that was it. And it was what it was. It wasn't, there was no reward. There was no, she had to do it because, you know, I, I made it happen, not by motivation. I suppose you could say I was using force, but I mean, it, it, it was just a habit. That's how we start math. Time. Right. And, you know, this is the first thing that we do. It's not really force in the sense. It's more, it's more insistence that this has to happen. But as soon as you substitute any of those other things in there, you are hindering the potential for, and this is that second principle that matters so much, 
the child building a relationship with what you want them to learn. That's the big thing. That second principle is, is if you believe that education is about relationships and you want your children to form relationships, that isn't necessarily, you know, instantaneous, especially with something like math. You kind of have to just be willing to let them slog through it in the hopes that they will eventually get to the point where, you know, they at least have some appreciation for it. Yeah. And like you said, when you gamify it, the, what are you really getting? It's short-term results, yeah. but it hinders the, that larger purpose of education in their lives. Yeah. It's interesting for me watching my kids navigate the world and as they get older, well, and we have more kids in our neighborhood than we did when my oldest was the age of my youngest. So when he was little, he played with his siblings and that was pretty much it. There weren't other kids roaming the neighborhood. I remember we used to joke like we would see them walking home, but we didn't know where they went because we never saw them again until the next day when they walked <laughs> home from school. It was so weird. But now my youngest has all these kids that he's playing with all the time. And so they all, they have different levels of what they're allowed to do as far as playing games on or having a phone even, but then playing games or whatever. And it, it is interesting that, I mean, I, I don't want them to like walk around judging how kids are being raised or how they're going to school, but they notice. They notice the kids that don't have phones either because their families can't afford them or because they're not allowed to or whatever. There's a huge difference. Those kids are motivated to invent the game and play with others and all that kind of stuff. And my kids notice that the kids attached to their phones, it's always the dopamine hit type thing that they're engaged in when they're little boys that are like 11. They're like, that kid's not very interesting. That's one of the things they'll say. Like, he doesn't want to do anything. And he doesn't want, and what they're noticing really is a lack of relationship with the world around them. They're just kind of disengaged and there's no, they don't see the value in inventing the game with the friends or going on the adventure with the friends or anything. It's just, I don't know. It's a fascinating thing. And what you have to realize is this is actually, this is a principle. It's not just somebody's opinion about how, how children or people are motivated and how, you know, alternative forms of motivation will affect them. This is the principle, and that's just what you're seeing. You can't, you can't change it. You can't make it any different. Anytime you substitute artificial motivation for what should be the right, you know, the real natural motivation for anything, you've undermined the relationship factor that you want to take place. Part of it is just, I mean, part of the world, the way the world is. But I mean, who would go and do, who would go and do, spend eight hours a day, you know, at a, at a job somewhere if, if there wasn't going to be a paycheck? Right. And we know that that's, that's proper, that's right, that people should be paid for the work that they do. But some of the things that you want children to do, that isn't a natural reward. So, you're, you know, it's natural to be paid for work that you do. That's, that's right. But it's not natural to get a star because you, you know, finished your math or whatever. Okay, let's say that me, as a mother, I've actually tried to gamify my life in order to make up for my own lack of motivation. Do you think, because you said you win by not playing the game was what you said in regard to our kids. Do you think this extends into my life as a mother that I have to check out of anything I've gamified in my own life to help me do the things I'm supposed to do? There is a slight difference between somebody who's mature and a child who's still developing their character. There is a difference. But at the same time, if you have chosen to gamify any aspect of your life. Are you not doing that because you're trying to shore up an, a weakness that you have? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, 
if it's something that you want to do, there's a part of yourself that you want to do it. And yet for whatever reason, it's difficult to motivate yourself to actually do make the effort to do whatever it is. That's a weakness. And as I said, I actually think that this part of our problem is we look at, oh, how do we motivate our kids is we don't even know how to motivate ourselves. Yeah. We, lo- we actually lack the strength of will to make ourselves do these things. So for ourselves, if you, if you do that in some aspect of your life, I mean, some people are motivated by having a checklist and checking things off. They find True. that very motivating or, or having, you know, a goal or even building in little rewards for themselves. You know, if I get this, this, and this done, then I'm, you know, going to go get a cup of coffee or whatever, you know? It's true. I earned myself a taco salad last night. (laughs) Exactly. True story. (laughs) You do that. But if you do that as an adult, it is, it is a conscious decision or should be a conscious decision Mm -hmm. to help you overcome weaknesses that you recognize in your own life. I can, I can, I don't actually feel that it is as much of a a hindrance to your character development as it is in a child. That's helpful to hear actually. Cause I, I, I was wondering like, should I feel guilty for, you know, this that I have actually it's embarrassing. I have it's a habit tracking app and I got it because I wanted to track certain habits. But when I check a box, it makes this annoying video game sounding sound and my kids all will like stop and look at me. What game is mom play? And I'm like, it's not a game. <laughs> all I did was check a box and it made this annoying sound. And if I knew how to turn it off, I would. And so I haven't actually gamified that. But every time I check a box, I think but what if I did? Like there are habit tracking apps where I earn a badge and da da da. And, but you're right. I mean, there is a difference because I set that up for myself. I was being driven by something that I was trying to accomplish or whatever versus like when we're doing it with kids, we're manipulating them because it's not coming from inside of them. It's coming from outside of them. Right. And that, that makes all the difference. That's what it's, you know, that's why all of those things, you know, about suggestion and influence that Charlotte Mason says are prohibited it's because one person is imposing upon another person. If your kids set up their own, you know, if we get school done by 11 o'clock and they make up their own reward, that's perfectly legitimate. Yeah, I do. Oh. I, have, I have a child that gets up and like starts school super early, like before anybody else is up because she wants to work out at 11 o'clock in the morning and she can't if she doesn't start at that time. I had a child who did that too. He figured out that if he could, if he got up at 5 a.m. and started his schoolwork, he'd have all this free time on the other end of the day. Yep. And so he did that. I have other kids who, you know, <laughs> would sleep till noon if I let them. Right. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So Misty and I actually did an episode on this years ago, but I want to I hear your response to this. So, well, you gave the example of not many people would go work for eight hours a day without the paycheck at the end of the day, which is totally true. And Usually you're doing your duty, right? You have a family to provide for. And so you went to work exactly. and did the work and all that kind of stuff. So what about the mom who says, because I've heard this from, from school moms before. Well, I pay my kids for their grades and for this and that and the other thing, like on their progress reports and everything, because this is their job right now. And when they're adults, then they'll have you know the, uh, the other job. So right now going to school and doing well is their job. Going to work and earning a paycheck there is the primary, a, yeah. the primary purpose of that, I mean, is you, the reason you wouldn't do the work without the paycheck is because, like you said, that's your duty. You have to have money to take care of your, your home and your family, and that's a responsibility. But the primary purpose of going to school is not to earn money. It's to learn. And if you pay money for learning, then you're undermining the learning. That's just, like I said, you can't get around it. Mm-hmm. Um, you really can't get around it. And the grades themselves, you know, paying for a grade, 
again, you're encouraging your children to consider the grade more important than anything that they're actually learning. And we have found, my kids are farm kids. I was raised in a farm, so was my husband. The farm work itself, actual physical labor is hard and everything like that. And at the end of the day, you can actually see your accomplishment most times, right? And it becomes its own reward. Now, the pay is also nice, but (laughs) I mean, uh, so my husband has the story where his dad only paid them their age, their age of wage per day. But my husband was like, I am worth more than this. So he rode his bicycle down to the neighbor farm and he got himself a job. And his dad, (laughs) cause his dad's like, no, I'm not going to pay you more than, you know, I can't remember what it was, but he rode himself down. Then he made minimum wage and he was raking in the money. (laughs) And it is so funny how, you know, real work gives kids that sense of worth. And I think it's true with working for education, right? It gives them that sense, that confidence, that sense of accomplishment when they finish a big book. And I don't have a problem with things like when we finish a really great book and we go out to discuss it and we go and have an ice cream or we go out to breakfast. I feel like that is one of those right rewards. Like, let's go and discuss this great thing that you, you know, that this great work of literature So tell me if that is a wrong reward or not. Well, I don't know what Karen would say, but one of the things I would say is it probably depends on whether or not you used it to manipulate your kids along the way. Like it was just, it was just something like, oh, let's go discuss this great book. I really want to have, you know, a special time for you and I to just enjoy the experience. Because I I, I guess what I was thinking was I've seen it acted out both ways. I've seen that and I've heard you talk about this. And I think that seems like a very natural reward to me and totally fun and something I do with my friends. Actually, we get together and discuss at book club and we're, you know, drinking hot chocolate or whatever. But I have seen moms that are like, well, if you don't finish the book, then you don't get to go to the thing. And so it's like the constant reminder. Uh, It's instead of setting it up as just an enjoyable way to end the process. It's mm-hmm. the way that they're manipulating the kids. It's the carrot, the carrot, the carrot. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like read your chapter today because you want the carrot. To me, that's the difference. Yeah. That's the thing that you really have to understand here because when you take out all of those other motivators, the only motivation that's left is the natural motivation of wanting to know, wanting to learn. And unfortunately, a child's appetite for wanting to learn is not going to match up precisely with the curriculum that we lay out in front of them. Yeah. <laughs> They're not necessarily going to want to know all of those things when we want them to know them. You just have to accept that. That's why Charlotte Mason describes it as putting out a feast and letting the child children take what they take. We've been reading a couple books by Joseph Pieper here, and he just talks about for the thing itself and how Scole kind of is that for learning things for their own sake and exactly. festivity is for its own sake and just these different things. And I think that education for its own sake and even to some extent doing a good job at your, yes, yes, you get paid, but no one can make you do an excellent job accept you and for its own sake rather than, you know, I mean, I'm sure there are monetary rewards and things like that, but there are people who are motivated to do the best at their job. And there are other people who will do the very bare minimum. So I think. Right. And it's a matter of self-respect. Yes. And again, all of those motives are undermined if you put any other artificial motive, you know, ahead of them. Well, Brandy and I were talking, Brandy, you go ahead and 
bring it up because oh. now I've lost my spot. <laughs> <laughs> All right then. What if I'm listening to this and I'm really discouraged because now I have a big kid. I have a kid 12 and up. And I've allowed all these things to creep in over the years. And I don't just mean playing video games. I mean, like I've been motivating them in school and in chores and in everything with the different things that work with those kids. So whether it's money or rewards or threats or whatever, I've figured out what works and that's what I've been using. And now I have a really unmotivated big kid that isn't really self-driven at all. What do I do? Because I see this a lot. I belong to this Facebook group on homeschooling high school. And one of the tensions I see is that when they end up with kids in this situation, there's this feeling of like, well, if I just go cold turkey on all of the manipulative things that I've been doing, I'm actually jeopardizing that child's future. I'm jeopardizing their transcripts, their ability to get into college, their whatever. And to the mom that's like, whoa, now what do I do? If the Charlotte Mason Renaissance (laughs) in the homeschooling (laughs) movement. If it's proven anything, it's that old dogs can learn new tricks. That just because you didn't learn to narrate when you were seven doesn't mean that you can't learn to do it when you're 37. I mean, we've seen that over and over again. So I don't think that these kids are hopeless, but I think moms can feel like they don't know what to do now. And now it's a big problem. Do you have any words of advice to that mom who's like, what do I do with this mess that we've allowed to creep up into our home? Right. Well, it it, it does depend to some extent on the age of the child. But if you're talking about 12 and up, you're not talking about children, little children. You know, historically, from that age, children were, I mean, girls got married when they were 13 and 14 and avoided a man's day's work that they're not children. And what that means is there's, you can't, as a parent, actually do it for them. They have to engage their own will in the matter. Hmm. So you really, rather than taking it, you know, imagining that all the power is in your hands and that you can motivate them, you're going to have to talk to them about how they need to motivate themselves. I was reading, I told you I've been reading this book, Thoughts on Education by, by Mandel Creighton. Oh, yeah. And he says, that you can't teach a child anything. You can't teach anybody anything. The only thing you can do is introduce them to a thing and convince them why they would want to learn it. So hmm. that's, that's the role of a teacher. It's not that you, you, you're not imparting knowledge. You're, just, you're, you're bringing the child to the knowledge and convincing them why they would want to learn it. I have one child who really struggles with reading and I have a couple of dyslexic kids and um, So one day he came to me and he flopped down on the bed and he just told me, he's like, mom, you're just going to have to force me to learn how to read. And, (laughs) but he, he's also very intuitive in his own understanding of things. And um, so he was asking for some, some willing, some help with his will (laughs) because he knew he didn't, because he knew it was really challenging for him. So we laugh about that now. And I was like, Desmond, you asked me to force you to read. So we're going to do reading practice now. He's like, oh, I know. But, <laughs> um, but, see, but see, that's exactly what, you would, yeah. what I think how you would want to do yes. is to get your child to the point where you, they understand that it's in their own best interest to yes. do what, you know, to, to learn. You could just say, okay, I'm going to stop teaching him and let you, you know, play games all day. But I mean, how do you think well, that's going to work out for you when you're 25? Yeah. They're not too young to think about that. No. 
that they that there's you know there's more to life than just playing games and probably when you know they reach a certain age you're not going to let them just live at home <laughs> and not contribute something as far yes. as you know they're going to have to have a job and they're going to have to you know what do you want to do with your life you you won't be a kid forever and and if they're old enough you know to have the problem of, of you know that you can't motivate them as just you know by being mom anymore then they're old enough to think about all of that and i just don't think that it's that a mom is going to be able to change her methods of motivating her children Honestly, I think a lot of the things that you that might have worked anyway are going to stop working by the time they're 12, and they're in life part of the problem, right? But you can't fix it. You can't fix it for them. You have to engage their own will in the process. Now, once they you've got them on their side, you can do you can, you can do the you know okay, I'm going to help you. We're going to set up a schedule. This is what you got to do. You know, I expect this to be done. I'm going to check up on you. You know, you can help them. But oh, still, yeah. they, their will, they have to choose for themselves to, to want to do it. It's, it's not that easy. And honestly, I don't know. I, I, I have one son and three daughters. And I saw it most with my son. When he, he hit that you know, high school age, I really think sometimes being accountable to somebody besides mom helps. Yes. If, if it's not just mom that they're accountable to, because it helps them to understand there's much more at stake here than me just doing what my mom is telling me to do. You know, she says, I have to read this book. She's making me do my math, but there's much, much more at stake there. And sometimes I think for boys, especially if they have to answer to somebody else, they begin to see that. And they're not too young to think, you know, what kind of person do you want to be? Yeah. Most boys, I think, appreciate the concept of, you know, self-discipline. Yeah. So did you, was it your husband that held him accountable in high school or did you have? Oh no, else? I was stuck. You were stuck. Yeah. I was stuck. Um, that's just part of the, I mean, that, that's, that's the conclusion. If I had had any, I live overseas and if I had right. had anything, you know, whether it would have been dual enrollment or a co-op or anything at all where I could have given him something to be accountable academically outside of home, I'd have done it. And I, I was stuck. He did purchase, he did have like, uh, like karate and, and those kind of activities outside of school. So there was something. Right. But academically, I was stuck. But I think that it would help for most boys. I, if they didn't, I would just have to answer to mom. Yeah. I didn't do this on purpose. But I mean, starting in about seventh grade, mm-hmm. there was almost always at least one person working with my oldest child outside of me, you know, whether it was a Latin tutor or a math tutor, or he took a a logic class one time, he took um, a Greek class from our pastor. I mean, there was always just kind of like something going on that was more like actual education stuff. I don't mean like having a job or whatever. I mean, he's done that kind of stuff too. But I mean, I never thought about this, about how that probably naturally diffused some of the situation because he was never, from the time he was 12, accountable to just me. And that's not why I was doing it, but maybe it worked out really well. I never thought about it before. <laughs> right. Well, just, I just think that it helps to broaden the perspective at a time when it's really important to broaden their perspective yeah. about the reasons for, for what they're doing. Right. And I think I saw it as broadening perspective, but in a, in a different way, just interacting with a different teacher and hearing a different person's perspective as their teacher, because most of those things were I mean, even with Latin and Greek, you're actually discussing ideas. But anyway, I don't want to get off topic here. So we have taken up enough of your time. (laughs) Well, I thank you for having me. I really have never talked to the Scully sisters without enjoying it thoroughly. Oh, good. 
Well, yes. we're going to get a whole weekend with you in yes. the fall because we're going to have you at the um, retreat this year. The theme, which is, is it loving, loving well? well? Yes, mm-hmm. loving well. Because everything well. is well with our souls. <laughs> um, That's a terrible joke, Brandy. Yeah, it really, it really is. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, we cannot wait. Yeah, we're very excited. So, with I think that that's going to be my only trip to the U.S. this year. So. Oh, really? Aw, and you're coming to see us. We're so excited. <gasps> ah, well, we will be hearing more from you then this year. Thank you so much for coming today yes. and having this discussion. This has been great, Karen. I really appreciate it. And and I appreciate your book. So yes. thank you for writing it. Oh, it's thanks. Been, so I'm, I'm really excited to, to I'm, I'm excited to hear and your thoughts about In Vital Harmony because I've had some for me to explain this book to anybody and so I think that I just I just what can I say you just have to read it and yeah and you tell you tell yes. me yeah yeah no no um I, I was explaining it to my book club last night because I was telling them I was like oh I'm gonna get I get to interview the author because my book club really likes that and um I just <laughs> said yeah it was it is going to be so helpful for people who are either starting out in homeschooling and need a solid philosophy that isn't six volumes. And also it is so helpful to a mom who has gone through, you know, maybe public education or didn't get the education she wished she had. And to just really tie it to principles and figure out a solid philosophy so that she can apply it in her unique situation. Because that's the thing is it's so hard to give advice to people when you're not in their family, right? It's, yep. it's so... So I think one of the things I really great. appreciate about Charlotte Mason is that she does give you principles and not a lot of checklists and you must do things exactly this way. These 20 principles are extremely flexible and yes. how you implement yes. them in, in either a school because they could, they would work just fine. You could use these principles, you know, to put together a school curriculum and a program as well. It's like, you know, like if we had all said, well, we're going to meet at Starbucks and we all knew where we were going but we have to start where we are. So yes. everybody's route is going to look a little bit different. We'd all end up at Starbucks. And so the more explicit you can be about your destination, you know, the more likelihood of everybody actually arriving and getting together. Hmm. Or, or at the same and Starbucks. So Charlotte Mason, there's like that's why Charlotte Mason says she's giving you a method. Yeah. Because the whole point of method is there's a specific goal. There's an object and you know where you're going. And if you get a little bit off course, if you know where you're going, you can always adjust your course. Yep. Right. Or if you have to take a detour, if there's something blocking your way, it doesn't mean you're going to lose sight of where you're headed, even if you have to go a roundabout way to get there. I think it's a real objective for me to try and encourage moms because homeschooling is a very, very long process. And you just really, I mean, the idea that you're going to start with your oldest when they're six and keep going until your youngest graduates without ever having a rough year or <laughs> getting discouraged or, you know, coming into a situation where there's just no easy answer, there's no easy way to fix it, it's kind of unrealistic. Yep. So my, it's just, I really, my heart at this stage of the game, and I'm not done homeschooling, but um, is just to encourage people to understand those basic fundamental things that really matter because that's what's going to carry you through all of those detours. Well, and they're the big picture things that we need to keep in mind, right? I mean, 20 principles seems like a lot and you've really honed in on the key 
things to remember that include all those other principles, but they're in a, in a format that you can easily remember. You even have a great picture graphic at the very end, and it is such a great picture of what the philosophy should encompass, and it really does help explain what is important and how all of the pieces fit together. And so I just, I really appreciate all the different illustrations that you used and were able to expound upon. Because sometimes Charlotte Mason can give examples that are just not, they just don't translate to our modern society, but you've really, you've really... It's not really just Charlotte Mason. I mean, it's true. I think for classical education, in the first place, I'm actually beginning to, I'm actually reaching a point where I feel like labels are not helping us because, I mean, do you think Plato called what he was doing classical education? No. (laughs) He just called it education, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's not Charlotte Mason education. It's not classical education. It's you, if you really have to dig in, if you go back through history and you read, nobody said we want to do classical education or, or, you know what I mean? They were, they were trying to understand education and what it is fundamentally. It's essence. And that's what, it's it's right. It's very essence. And that's what Charlotte Mason's principles are. Like, this is the way that she interpreted this. Like these, these, these aren't my principles. These are the principles of education. She had a way of articulating them. And so did Plato. And so did Comenius. And so did Augustine. And that's the thing. In every single generation, you have got to have new voices re-articulating the same principles because the principles aren't going to change, but our culture does change. And, and, you know, what we expect of our young people and how much time they have to give to education has changed throughout history, just all kinds of things. And so you have to keep going back and looking at the principles and figuring out how to make them work now. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us and um, for people listening in vital harmony is available on Amazon. I'm assuming that they could actually request it from a bookseller if they wanted to do that. Like if they went into a bookstore, it can be ordered, right? Is, does that work? Probably. Yes, that can be done. Okay. It'd be, Somebody it'd just be, told me that, that they were waiting for it at their library. Like they, they, the library had it and it was on a waiting list. They were on a waiting list for it already. Oh, wow. So some libraries, sometimes libraries will order them. Oh, so that's a, that's a great idea, guys, if you want to go request it at your library and maybe your library will actually even buy it. So it would be available. That'd be exciting. Anyway, get yourself a copy of In Vital Harmony. We can't recommend it enough for, um, I mean, it's, the subtitle is Charlotte Mason and the Natural Laws of Education, but maybe we'll just call it education. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I had, to put, I had to put Charlotte Mason in there because I am articulating all about education, you know, through her, the lens of her 20 principles. But I don't think that Charlotte Mason is the most important part. And I don't think she thought she was the most important part of that equation. I think that, you know, it it was her subject that she cared about. And she knew that she was trying to share the natural laws of education. That's what she said in volume one. I want to give you a method based on, you know, the natural laws. I just love it, Karen. Thank you. Well, good. It's not the way we usually think about it. Yeah. But to my way of thinking, it's a much, much better starting place for approaching this very long process of teaching your children. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of the sisterhood of the podcast. 
Make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss any of the episodes coming out this season, including a special bonus episode coming up soon. Every episode has a Scully sheet, and this episode is no exception. At Scully Sisters, we want to be people who apply what we learn rather than just listening and then forgetting. Scully sheets are individual journal pages to help you apply the ideas from the episode. Download your Scully sheet for free from our show notes at scolesisters.com slash SS67. Don't forget that you can still join the Sistership Premier Mentorship with Kelly Cumbie. Kelly's weekly chats have been amazing. Go to scolesisters.com slash sistership and select Premier to sign up. Has your Scully gotten away from you? Next episode, Misty, Abby, and I are chatting up how to bring Scully back to the education you are giving yourself and your children. Until then, we want to remind you once again that homeschooling is a marathon you needn't run alone, so open up your eyes and look around you. Find your sisters. It's been a long talking week for me, so I sound like maybe I've been smoking in back alley. <laughs> Do you want me to whisper? <laughs> Did you used to work with Jennifer Dow? No. Uh-uh. Okay, I'm not so that that's, smart. That's Ashley. Oh, Ashley. Ashley. I, I knew there was... Okay, okay. It yeah, was, yeah. No, she's brilliant. Okay. Please, please lower your expectations. <laughs>